Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Uh, if you've um, if you've been with us uh, for the last little bit, uh, you know that we have been uh, looking at uh, the book of Acts uh, in this most recent sermon series, uh, looking at the story of the earliest churches uh, uh, immediately after Jesus's resurrection and ascension. How the church went uh, from just a uh, a small little band of Jesus followers uh, to come to be a uh, a church community that really penetrated every corner of the known world. In that, we've seen in some ways how very much like us they are, right? We've seen how the church grew person by person, baptism by baptism, uh, as men, women, and children came to call on the name of Jesus. In some ways, we've also seen how unlike us they are, how they did seem to experience a depth of purpose and mission and vision and power that often seems foreign to us. And so we've been looking at this, hoping that God would uh, open up and rekindle our sense of purpose in his mission. And so uh, this morning, we are going to be in uh, in Acts chapter 19, uh, beginning in verse uh, 23. If you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Again, our scripture reading uh, today, Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know uh, that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only here in Ephesus... um, But in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some of them cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? 
saying then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have uh, brought these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. You can be seated. Recently, I uh, chaperoned a uh, field trip with my oldest son, Houston. And uh, one of the things that was required for this field trip was they had to uh, accumulate pictures as they went. They had to take pictures and build a little scrapbook So get this, they had to have a camera, but they weren't allowed to have a phone. Think about that for a minute. When was the last time uh, you went somewhere where you wanted a camera, but not a phone? And so we uh, we went to go to try try to find one and found one on Amazon for a little digital camera for like 15 bucks. What would have been, you know, 20 years ago would have been the cutting edge technology. Uh, was now almost entirely obsolete, right? I wonder if uh, the owner of Canon, uh, little you know, little mini cameras, or the other companies that made them, I wonder when they first held an iPhone and saw that it had a camera. I wonder if they realized uh, that everything was changing for them and not in a good direction. I wonder uh, if they could have, if they would have stopped somehow people from uh, putting uh, cameras in their phones and taking away uh, this entire other business of handheld portable cameras. Well, something like that uh, is going on here in Ephesus with this guy, Demetrius. The ground is changing right in front of him. His world is changing. His industry is changing. He sees the growth of the Christian church in Ephesus under the leadership of Paul, under this growing group of disciples. And he who made his living making silver statues of the goddess Artemis for the temple and for sale to tourists and and people who came on pilgrimage, he recognized, oh no, if this continues, right? If, If the church continues to grow in this way, if this guy continues to preach that the the true God cannot be worshipped in these little silver statues, then we're done for. And so he decides he's going to try to do something about it. He's going to try to preserve their way of life and their way of worship. So uh, Demetrius, uh, the man who's introduced to us here, we think that most likely he was the head of the local silversmiths guild. Right? He was the leading uh, silversmith in the city, the one who kind of led and managed that industry uh, within Ephesus. And this would have been a good life. Ephesus uh, was the global center of the worship of the goddess, the Greek goddess Artemis, the Roman goddess Diane, daughter of Zeus. Uh, we believe that Ephesus, uh, that basic place in modern-day Turkey, had been for hundreds of years... Uh, the place where this goddess was worshipped. Actually, we have archaeological evidence uh, from the Bronze Age that in a very early time that there was an uh, an earthen temple set aside there for a goddess. 
right? We think maybe that these ancient peoples uh, thought that this was sacred ground because of a uh, maybe an asteroid or a meteor that had fallen there. They, they make reference of where the stone fell from the heavens. But they designated this as a sacred spot. So during the Bronze Age, a temple first appeared. A more substantial one with columns was built in the 800s of B.C. It was destroyed by a flood that swept through the area and then rebuilt. It was destroyed by fire and then rebuilt. So by the time Paul comes into Ephesus, this is now the third temple uh, of Artemis that was there. People traveled from all over the Roman Empire to worship her there. There was an annual festival called the, Art the Artemisia that brought tourists from all over. The temple to Artemis was considered one of the seven ancient wonders uh, of the ancient world. Everyone who, who went marveled at it. And importantly for Demetrius, they bought souvenirs, right? If at the, temple of, at the center of the temple was a, a, a statue of this goddess, uh, they would sell little replicas of the statue so that people could take them from Ephesus, take them back home to Rome or uh, to wherever it is that they came from and set up little shrines in their homes. And so uh, the Ephesian culture was built around this cult of Artemis. It was their pride and joy when they walked, you know, when they were traveling and somebody asked, where are you from? They could puff up their chest and say, I'm from Ephesus. We've got the, we've got the temple of Artemis. Just like when somebody asks, where are you from? You say, I'm from Jacksonville. We've got the Jaguars. It was what they were known for. It's what made them significant and special. It was the center of their civic pride. It was the center, as we see here, of their economic life. And it was, follow the money. <laughs> and into this city, we get a summary of Paul's message, right? It's always fascinating to track the way that Paul preaches in different cultures, right? When he goes into the synagogues uh, of Israel, he begins teaching about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? But when he walks into a place like Ephesus, we don't get a whole sermon of his in Ephesus. We only get Demetrius's summary of it. In verse 26, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Right? We hear him in Athens, in Acts 17, expanding on that a little further, saying, being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art or imagination of man. So when he goes into uh, the Greek-speaking and Greek-worshipping world, he sets his eyes on the idolatry that he sees everywhere. Right? This is a people who are fixated by idols, by the belief that they can manage the transcendent God, that they can take what is wholly other, the God who made all things, and reduce him down into an item, into an object of worship that they can appease, that they can take with them, that they can sacrifice for. And so he begins to, to build out a theology for them that says, no, 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 look, the God who made everything cannot be constrained into an item of worship. The God who made uh, the world and the heavens and the earth and the stars, you can't make him and put him in a shrine to be worshiped. Now, we don't know much about Demetrius. 
one of two things had to be true of Demetrius, right? He either had to be a true believer in the goddess Artemis, right? Maybe he really believed that when he fashioned one of these little silver objects that it became a god, or he was a fraud, right? We don't know which. I mean, you know, I would think that the guy making the idols would know that, hey, this started out as just elements. You know, this started out as silver and now it's a god. I'm, I'm pulling something on people here. But we don't know. Maybe he was a true believer in this. But regardless, Demetrius's protest isn't first and foremost religious. It's economic, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's under the guise of religion. Our great Artemis might be removed from her throne, but it's centrally an economic worry. For Demetrius. Francis Schaeffer, a great apologist of the 20th century, warned against the idolatry of personal peace and wealth, which he called the gods of the modern world. That ultimately, if you want to know what the world ultimately worships, regardless of whether people claim to be Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, other, whether they claim to have no religion, that the guiding uh, force of modern culture is the worship of personal comfort and wealth. And what he said is that this personal affluence, personal peace and wealth blinds people from asking the really significant questions of life, right? That if we're healthy enough, if we're wealthy enough, if we're comfortable enough, If we have all of our earthly needs met and all of our questions answered, then we don't ask those ultimate questions that lead us beyond the questions of life in this world. And so Demetrius found his comfort and his wealth being challenged, being disrupted uh, by this growing Christian movement. And that it worries him so much that he's willing to incite a riot is evidence of just how much this church was growing in Ephesus. That it wasn't just a peripheral threat, but he saw it really ultimately taking away uh, the idol of Ephesus and disrupting their economic life. There's echoes in this story of some of the other stories that we've seen in Acts and in the Gospels about how people tolerate the, the movement of the Christian message until it begins to mess with the bottom line, right? You might think of Jesus. Remember the story of Jesus in the Gerasene demoniac? Remember he goes across the river or across the lake and he gets there and there's the man who's been possessed by so many demons that he has to be chained up and kept in a cave. And when he casts out the demons, remember he sends the demons into a herd of pigs and the pigs jump over a cliff. And what do all the people of the town say? They don't say, Oh, praise God, the, guy, the chain guy that was used to be naked in that cave, he's healed. No, what do they say? Hey, about our pigs. Listen, that was, that was a lot of money worth of pigs that just jumped off that cliff. Or you might remember when Paul earlier uh, goes into the city of Philippi and he sees a woman uh, who was a slave to some wealthy owners who uh, was possessed by demons and they would use her for fortune telling. And when Paul heals her and casts out the demons, her masters don't say, oh, thank God. She's healthy. She's in her right mind. She's well. They say, hey, we used to turn her out to get some really good money. And so what about, what about that? 
And so we see what starts to happen is that there is an allegiance that happens in, in, in people's lives. In fact, an allegiance that happens in every culture where the dysfunctions of that culture, the idolatries of that culture, begin to be connected to money and power, right? So that to question the idol means to question the foundations of a culture's economic life, of its civic life, of the way of life that they had all embraced, right? We can look um, sadly at the history of the world, at the history of our own country at points, and see places where, the, uh, where, where even Christians chose to not challenge the idols of their time so as to not mess with the economic security of their time and truncated the gospel along the way. Probably the most glaring example of that uh, is the way that uh, during the era of slavery in America, that the gospel was truncated to the point of allowing for human slavery in order to preserve an economic way of life, right? That we have, you can go, um, you can go and see still copies of what's known as the slave Bible, which is a Bible that happened to be missing most of the Old Testament, large sections of the gospel, right? It was a reduction of Christianity down to a message of believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven when you die that left out the claims of the creator on all of life, that left out uh, the image of God and all people, that left out the prophetic critiques of injustice in the world. And the slave Bibles were not made by slave owners by and large. In fact, we know that they were made by missionaries, people who wanted to proclaim a piece of the gospel, but not so much of the gospel that it would change the fabric of the way of life that had grown up. They didn't want to disrupt an economic system and a way of life. And so Demetrius sees this beginning to happen. He sees the disruptive power of the gospel beginning to ripple through Ephesus. And he says, if I don't, have to do, if I don't do something about this, we're going to go out of business. And now to Demetrius's credit, he was right. <laughs> to his credit, as the gospel gained traction, over time, Artemis became relegated to history books, right? You might have read about the pantheon of the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses in school, but you probably don't know anyone who worships her. And yet Christianity grew to the point that it took over the world. Scholars estimate that in AD 40, around this time, there were about a thousand Christians in the world. By AD 100, there were about seven to 10,000 Christians. By 200 AD, there were 200,000 Christians. And by 300 AD, there were five to six million Christians. This is an explosive, exponential growth of Christianity that Demetrius, for all of his many flaws, saw coming and said, this is not good for us. The world was being disrupted. Culture was being disrupted by the gospel. And I think that it's worth asking, what would it look like? What would it look like for the gospel to disrupt our lives, to disrupt our culture in that kind of way? For the, goal, for the gospel to so transform our lives that it began to ripple out and to challenge the idols of our culture, 
to challenge the idols of our world. Here's just a couple of ideas. I would imagine, I would wager that if Christians, just Christians, refused to participate in the pornography economy, that it would have the potential to bankrupt a $20 billion industry. What would it look like if Christians refused to participate in the enemy-making machine that is today's news and public events? If we just said, hey, you know what, as Christians, we're just not going to walk around angry at people we disagree with all the time. It would probably shut down the internet as we know it. I, 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 by the way, I love, did you catch the little definition in, in here where it said that most of the people didn't realize why they were yelling? They said, hey, we're, we're in the square and we're yelling and we don't know why, but we want to be a part of it. That, that seems to me to be a perfect definition of today's internet life, right? Just, I'm, I'm angry. I'm, I don't know why, but I'm just going to tell you about it. What would it do if Christians refused to participate? What networks and websites would go out of business? What would happen if we became increasingly free of the greed and consumerism that keeps us buying more and more and more? Kids, what would happen in the culture of your school if just the Christians refused cruelty and said, you know what, we're not going to gossip, we're not going to bully, we're not going to make fun of anybody? What would it do to the culture of a school or of a place if the Christians began to die to the idols that can affect us? What does it look like to have this kind of disruption in a culture and in our lives through the gospel? I just want to look at four ways that we can live this kind of disruptive gospel witness. The first is to be mindful of the idols of our world. Look, it was easy for Paul to walk into Ephesus and see where the idols were because she was literally a statue in a temple. Right, but you notice that ultimately it wasn't Artemis. The, 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 the idol of Artemis wasn't the one that led to the rebellion. It was the idol of mammon, right? It was money, right? That there's always, there's, there's what's obvious to the eyes. And then there's the hidden idolatry that animates every culture. Here it was greed. It was pride. Certainly still active idols today. But we believe that human beings made in the image of God are made to worship. We're made to assign ultimate meaning to things. And if it's not overtly religious, if it's not the living God, you will ascribe worship to lesser things, to money, to power, to race, to sex, to approval, to comfort. And then you can justify almost anything. Once you've told yourself that you can't live without something, once you've told yourself that without something, your life can't continue to exist, you can justify almost anything. John Calvin knew this. He described the human heart as a perpetual idol factory. It's like a, an assembly line that churned out idols. Take one away, another one comes up. Another great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, uh, said it this way. He said, you know, the... Uh, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He said, there's a reason that one's first, because if you're going to break any of the others, it's because you've already broken that one, right? Usually if you're telling a lie, it's to protect your reputation or it's to protect your wealth or it's to protect your image, right? You've already lifted something else up as a God and therefore you'll kill, you'll lie, you'll steal to get it. 
And so a disruptive witness means that we're conscious and aware of the idols of our world, aware of where they are and where the temptations lie, aware of what it is that we and our neighbors are tempted not to treasure as a good thing, but to worship as an ultimate thing. So a disruptive witness should be mindful of the idols of our world. A disruptive witness, secondly, should be bold in proclamation should be bold in being willing to tell the good news. You know, it's indicative here that, you know, what we see happening here is the way that, uh, that Jesus always steals the kingdom of idols out from under them by converting the people who used to worship them into worshiping something else, right? Yes, Paul's making arguments, right? He's making arguments about idolatry. He's making arguments about um, why it's silly to worship idols, but ultimately, it's about proclaiming that Jesus is the true God, that he is, if they believed that the idol was the place where heaven and earth met, where people could taste transcendence and come to know God, he said, no, no, that's in Christ. Christ is the only one, the only place. And they were willing to be bold in the defense of it. You know, it's interesting that Ephesus had a fairly robust uh, and long-lasting Jewish community uh, there in Ephesus. Right, we think that's what's going. Remember in the story when Alexander gets called in to make a defense, and remember the Jewish community had the same second commandment that the Christians did, right? Make no idols, and yet they had struck a way, a long-term way of existing side by side with the idolatry of Ephesus, kind of a leave us alone, we'll leave you alone, live, give us our private life of worship here, and we won't upset the apple cart too much over here. And so when Alexander makes a defense, we're not told what that defense is, but we think it's probably, look, those Christians aren't us, right? Remember, we know how to get along. Remember, we, we, we never messed with Artemis. And we still, don't we, people of faith still have that tension of kind of striking a peace, learning to go along to get along, or speaking the word that might not be popular to speak, standing for something that's true that may not be popular to be true, going against the grain instead of just going with the grain. And Paul is a man of incredible boldness. I love the story that he's, he's, there's a riot going on and he tries to walk right into it and has to be withheld by his friends. Did you get that? Paul was willing to go right in. We see that in Acts all the time. His friends are basically having to save Paul from himself all the time uh, because he wants to walk into a dangerous situation. And so it's worth noting that, that here, what, what begins to upset this culture, what begins to turn over the, uh, their, their economic way of life and their way of worship was the proclamation of the gospel, right? That when the gospel is heard, when it's understood, when it's embraced by faith, people change. And as people change, culture has the ability to change. We should pray for boldness. In our witness, we should pray for fruit and courage in our sharing of the gospel. Thirdly, a disruptive witness has to embrace the way of Jesus. I love the way this is described in verse 23, the very first verse we read. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, uppercase. This was, it seems, the main way that the church was described in the ancient world. The way, main way that the church described themselves was as the way, 
We know that in Antioch, we heard earlier, that's where they were first called Christians. But it seems like the outsiders looking on were calling them Christians. But when they got together and talked about themselves, they just defined themselves as followers of the way. To call Christianity the way, to call the church the way, I love. Because it's a, it's a gesture towards the reality that to be a Christian is more than simply to, to assent to certain truths, right? It's more than just to say in your mind, there's only one God and Jesus is his son, and there's uh, one God and three persons, there's a death and a resurrection. It's more than simply to say, I agree in my mind that these things are true. It's to take onto ourselves a way of life, a way not only of believing, but a way of living in response to what we believe. We think that uh, this phrase, the way, has roots, certainly in the Old Testament when Moses held out the way of life versus the way of death towards the people in the covenant, maybe even to the words of Jesus himself who called himself the way, the truth, and the life, right? That he doesn't just teach the way, he is the way. That life in Christ is life in his way of life. For the church to be a disruptive witness in the world, it requires us to embrace Jesus, not simply as the, the, comfort that gives us, the, the comfort that he gives us for life after this life, right? Not simply to believe in order that we can go to heaven when we die, but that he has the right as our Lord and King to order every single bit of our lives, that he gets to be Lord over our economic life and our relational life, uh, our academic life, our vocational life that he is the Lord of every single bit of our lives, and to follow him means to live in his way. Paul would have never caused the stir that he did. The, these members of the way never would have stir, uh, caused the stir that they did if they were just passing out tracts about how to go to heaven. But no, they were embodying a different way of life that challenged the idols of their day. Now, this way of life, of course, we enter into by sheer unexpected grace, a pure offer of absolute love and acceptance, pure, purely a gift from God. But it is a gracious invitation to a whole life of discipleship to Jesus, to follow him instead of the idols of our culture. You know, this is, uh, this is the question that haunted so much of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's work. Uh, Bonhoeffer, a, a German theologian who lived under the ascent and reign of Nazi Germany, was ultimately put to death uh, as a Nazi war criminal, you know, not a Nazi, uh, by the Nazis. The question that haunted so much of his work is how could a Christian nation be taken so easily in by Hitler's Nazism? Right? It wasn't just the problem of evil, how can someone be Hitler? But it was how can our churches, hand, how, can we, how do we just hand ourselves over to him? How did Christian churches become a, a ripe target for the idolatry that he brought, the idolatry of nation and race and military? How did they fall for it so easily? How did his own Lutheran brothers and sisters, right? Students of Luther, men, men and women that he went to seminary with. How did they hand over the keys of the church to the Nazis? 
And in his uh, classic book, Discipleship, he ventures an answer. He says that his Lutheran church, uh, had, the, phrases that, the phrase that he gives, they had adopted a gospel of cheap grace instead of a gospel of costly grace. Now he does, he's, he's very clear to say, look, grace isn't cheap, it's free, <laughs> right? The, the, talking about costly grace isn't about a grace that you buy, it's not a grace that you earn, it's a grace that's, that's freely given. But what he says is that in, an, in, in a, the kind of typical, uh, it's, it's been typical of a lot of followers of Luther for a long time, ourselves included, right? That in the discovery of justification by faith, the free offer of extravagant grace, that was rightly embraced by Luther and his followers, that there came on the other side of that so, such an allergy towards anything that, they could, that could even be thought of as legalism, that they wouldn't touch it. Now, in some ways, legalism is and has always been a threat to the church, right? Legalism, that, that false teaching that says that there is anything you can do that will earn God's acceptance, delight, forgiveness, or love, right? He says that they, they had a righteous desire to flee away from all of that. But in fleeing away from it, they also fleed from the call to discipleship. They, they shied away from the Jesus who called his disciples to, to leave their nets, in Peter's case, and follow him. The voice of Jesus that called Matthew the tax collector to leave his tax collector's booth to follow him. The voice of Jesus that called the rich young ruler to give it all up, to follow him, that they had lost sight of the call to discipleship. He says this about costly grace. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and to follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? It's costly because it calls us to leave behind the idols of our heart and our world. But it's grace because we discover that the one who calls us is full of life and mercy and grace. That what he lays on us the yoke of discipleship is one that he has carried for us in the cross. And so what Bonhoeffer said was that if a church is going to stand up in the face of Nazism, if it's going to stand up in the face of idolatry and fascism, that it's going to require a church that hears the voice of Jesus saying, follow me and not another. Follow me and not them. Follow me even if it costs you everything to be a disruptive witness. And then finally, a disruptive gospel calls us to be mindful over the affections and loves of our own hearts. Now, we've been in Ephesus for a couple of weeks now uh, with Paul. He's, he's been, uh, been in Ephesus for a while. We have a lot of data on the church in Ephesus. We have his ministry there, then we have the letter to the Ephesians, and then towards the end of the Bible, in Revelation, we have a letter written from Jesus to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And here's what, uh, a couple of decades later, Jesus says to the Ephesians, starting in verse, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, 
I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know, so Jesus affirms a few things about the church in Ephesus. You're bold, you uh, differentiate truth from error. But then when he gets to, but I have this against you, right? If you ever, if you ever had a conversation with somebody, maybe your boss, when they say, look, Bob, you show up early, you work hard, your papers are always in on time, but we need to talk about this, right? You know, the, when somebody butters you up with the nice things and then they go get to the real point, right? It's kind of, Jesus says, look, you do this well, you do this well, but one thing, you don't love me anymore. And it's really what's at the heart of this. You used to love me, and you've fallen away from the love that you had. Ephesian church, you once had a love that turned your city upside down. You had a love that led people en masse to walk out of Artemis' temple. You had a love that your heart was so set on me that all of the other offerings to worship paled in comparison. But your heart has drifted away. Right, The life of discipleship, the life of following Jesus is ultimately a life of the heart. It's a life of making sure that Jesus remains our first love, that we see him as better than anything that this world offers, anything better than the comforts of this life, that we cling to him because of how he clings to us, where we love him, as John says, because he first loved us, that we ground our love in him because he died for us. How sad is it that in the city where Artemis lost her temple, that the Ephesian Christians are in danger of losing theirs? That's what Jesus says. He says, if you don't repent, unless I'm your first love, your lampstand will go out. It'll be taken away. Right, that the church lives and exists in worship with, where Jesus is our supreme love, the supreme desire of our hearts. Empowered by that kind of love, the church can be free again to be a disruptive witness in the midst of our world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we admit... Um, as much as we don't want to, that, uh, or I admit, as much as I don't want to, that my own life could use some disruption sometimes. I get too comfortable in the ways of the world and in the values of our culture. I too easily accept as true uh, what's easy. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would disrupt our lives once again. Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to hear your voice calling us to follow you to follow you over and against uh, the pressures of this world. Lord Jesus, that we would be faithful to follow you, that Lord Jesus, you would keep your hold on our hearts, that you would ever and always be our first love. And Lord, that maybe we might be a disruptive witness in our culture. 
that we might see real fruitful and substantive change in our world as people come to know you and claim you and follow you in their lives. Lord Jesus, this is beyond our power to do. And so we ask, Lord, for you to lead and by your spirit to work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.